We are now in the fifth part of a sermon series titled Jesus Christ, the Bridegroom Messiah. Now, we all know that God loves us. But we also know that there is a big gap between merely knowing that God loves us and actually feeling and experiencing the love of God in our lives. This is not an easy gap to cross. And as if this gap was not enough, there is another big gap between merely feeling the love of God, merely feeling the love of God, and actually living in line with the truth that God loves us. If we truly know that God loves us, and if we truly are experiencing God's love, then I would imagine that every one of our lives would look very different from what it looks like now. Uh, we will all be far less anxious than we are. We will all be far less impatient than we are. Uh, we will all be far less fearful than we are. We will all be far less restless than we are. You see, all of these negative emotions uh, that damage us and the negative emotions that cause us to hurt others, sometimes unintentionally, are all flowing from a lack of experiencing and enjoying God's love that is available to every one of us in Christ Jesus. And as I've been saying every week in this sermon series, the goal of this series is to, is to grow in our experience of God's love. Learning to be loved by God is one of the most important uh, uh, keys to our well-being and to our flourishing. Uh, if we are not experiencing God's love, our lives will lack the joy that God desires us to have. In other words, every time you, you hit a moment in your day where there seems to be no joy in your life, I think that will be a good moment to take a, a moment to reflect on this continuum of God's love. Knowing God's love, feeling and experiencing God's love, and living God's love. And every lack of joy in our life points to a gap in this continuum. How do we bridge this gap between merely knowing God's love and actually feeling and experiencing God's love? How do we bridge this gap between experiencing God's love and actually living in line with the truth that God loves us? How do we bridge this gap? We can't. The true answer to the question is we cannot bridge this gap by ourselves. We can never bridge this gap. Only God can bridge this gap. You see, the truth of the matter is none of us, none of us went to heaven to find Jesus and believe in him. Nobody did that. Christ Jesus, he came down. He revealed himself to us so that we could experience his love. And so God has to bridge this gap between feeling God, knowing God's love, experiencing God's love, and living in line with the truth that God loves us. 
And so all through this sermon series, we've been seeing that one of the ways that God uh, uh, helps us experience His love more and more, God helps us bridge these gaps, is by revealing Himself as a bridegroom Messiah or lover Savior all through the Bible. And so for four weeks now, through the book of John in the New Testament, and through the books of uh, Song of Songs, in the book of Jeremiah, in the book of Exodus, in the Old Testament, we've been seeing that God is constantly revealing himself to us as our bridegroom Messiah. It's not, it's not often that we think of God. It's not often that we relate to and experience God as our bridegroom. But if that is how God is revealing himself to us all through the Bible, then that must tell us something about the level and the extent of intimacy that God desires us to have with him. And so as we continue along in the series, I'm quite excited uh, for this morning. We're going to be looking at the book of uh, Ephesians in the New Testament. And through the passage we're going to be looking at this morning, I'm hoping to present to us a refreshingly beautiful perspective on baptism. We're going to be talking about baptism this morning. Allow me to read the passage for us. I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 to 27. It's going to come up for us on the screen. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to, himse present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. It's a short passage, so I'd like to read that for us again. I want to invite us to, to allow God to speak this passage over our hearts. Beautiful passage. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her, by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain, without wrinkle, or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. This is God's, God's word. I want to draw two things for us this morning from this passage. First, I'd like to present for us a refreshing picture of baptism. And second, I want to talk about the reckless love of God. A refreshing picture of baptism and the reckless love of God, both are kind of interconnected. Let's start by looking at baptism. This passage gives us a very beautiful picture of baptism. The word baptism isn't there, and some of you are probably going to the part of the passage which is opening the door for this conversation on baptism. But it's a beautiful picture of baptism that this chapter, this passage is presenting. There are two clear and vivid imageries in this passage. The first imagery is the imagery of marriage. Christ is the husband or the bridegroom and the church is the bride. So when the passage says that Christ loved the church, it means he loved all of us who believe in Christ Jesus. Christ is, is the bridegroom. And we are the bride. That's the first imagery in this passage, the imagery of marriage. 
The second imagery in this passage is found in verse 26. Allow me to read that for us. To make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. Here in this verse, Christ the husband or bridegroom is cleansing his bride by washing her through the word. And so the second imagery is a washing and a cleansing by water. This is baptism. So let me take a quick minute to explain baptism to those of us who might still be new to our churches. If this is your first time, just let me take a minute to explain what baptism really is. Whenever anyone comes to believe in Jesus, whether it's a person who comes to put his faith or her faith in Jesus for the first time uh, at his or her expression of desire, he or she is baptized. If you've been to a baptism service uh, here, we set up a pool of water right here. Uh, and the new believer is immersed fully in water and then raised up again from out of the water. The immersion into the water signifies the believer identifying with Christ in his death. That's what the immersion signifies. And when the believer comes out of water after being immersed in the water, that signifies the believer identifying himself or herself with the resurrection of, of Christ. In baptism, the new believer is joyfully proclaiming his or her faith in Jesus to the entire world. Baptism also signifies that we are now dead to our sins and alive to Christ. And so there are two imageries in this passage. The first is the imagery of marriage. And the second is the imagery of baptism. And what I'm hoping to do in this sermon is to help us see the beautiful connection in this passage between the imagery of marriage and the imagery of baptism. Consider this. Are these two imageries in this passage, are these two imageries disconnected and independent images, or are these two imageries in the passage deeply interconnected with one another? In this passage is Paul, he's the author of this passage, he's the author of the book to Ephesians. In this passage is Paul calling us to see marriage and baptism as two different pictures. Or is Paul calling us to see the two as one composite picture. And I'm hoping to show us that marriage and baptism are not two different pictures that Paul is painting in this passage. I'm hoping to show us that marriage and baptism are actually one composite picture that Paul is painting for us in this passage. How is that even possible? These two are such diverse ideas. How can they be one composite picture? To us living in the 21st century, this will seem like two very different pictures. But to the Jewish audience that Paul originally wrote this letter to, it would have been clear, vivid, and obvious that Paul is not talking about two different things, but Paul is actually talking about marriage and baptism as the same thing. And it's going to take me just a couple of minutes to unpack this for us. 
to help us see what Paul is showing here, allow me to take us through the Jewish marriage ceremony. For hundreds of years, the mikvah, as it's called in Hebrew, the mikvah has been a crucial and non-removable part of the Jewish wedding process. For thousands of years and even to this day, every Jewish bride before her wedding immerses herself fully in a pool of fresh water. The mikvah in Hebrew or immersion into the water symbolizes the bride being cleansed and washed physically and spiritually as a preparation for her to be united with her bridegroom. Do you see where I'm going with this? In this passage, when Paul is talking about a bride being, uh, is Paul is talking about an immersion and washing in water in the context of Christ the husband and us the bride, what do you think the original Jewish audience of this book understood? In this passage, when Paul is talking about a baptism and a marriage in the light of the Jewish practice of the mikvah, what do you think the original audience understood from this passage? The original audience saw baptism as the bridal bath before the wedding. They saw baptism as the bridal bath before the wedding. They did not see marriage and baptism as two separate pictures. They saw baptism as a part of the marriage ceremony. And so in our context, Paul is presenting baptism as the bridal bath that we take before we are united with Christ, our bridegroom Messiah in marriage. Isn't this, isn't this beautiful? Baptism is the bridal shower or the bridal bath we take as the bride of Christ just before we are united with him as our bridegroom. So when a new believer says, I want to be baptized, we are actually saying, I want to be married to Christ Jesus. I want to take this bridal bath as preparation for my marriage to Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And so that's what I meant when I said that the goal of this sermon is to help us see this beautiful connection between the two imageries of, of baptism and marriage in this passage. These are not two very different pictures Baptism or a bridal bath is very much a part of this picture of our marriage to our bridegroom, Messiah. Now, I can assure you that we are a church and not a Jewish synagogue. So I'm not basing everything that I'm saying merely on Jewish tradition. I'm basing uh, what I'm saying on the Bible. This imagery of, of baptism and marriage uh, baptism of God's people and marriage of God's people with God himself uh, is so interconnected all through the Bible. Let me just take a moment to help us see that. Last week, I helped us see that when God gave Israel the Ten Commandments, he made a covenant with Israel at that time of giving the Ten Commandments. And that covenant he made with Israel was actually a wedding covenant between God the bridegroom and Israel the bride. That's what we saw last week. If you missed that sermon, I'd really encourage you to listen to that online. 
So in the giving of the Ten Commandments, God the Bridegroom formed a covenant of marriage with Israel, his bride. What if I showed you that God asked Israel to immerse themselves in water before he formed this marriage covenant with them in giving the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai? What if I showed you God asked his bride, Israel, to immerse herself in water before coming up to be married to him on Mount Sinai? Let me show that to us from Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. This is just before God made this covenant at Mount Sinai. Exodus chapter 19, verse 10. Let me read that for us. The Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments. The word consecrate here in this passage actually means a full immersion in water. It actually means to wash and to sanctify. And the second part of the verse which says wash their garments kind of makes that even more clear to us. That's what God did before he formed this covenant of marriage at Mount Sinai, at the time of giving the Ten Commandments, God is calling Israel to immerse herself first. God is calling Israel to enjoy a bridal bath first before she walks up to be married to him. There's, a, there's an author named Rick Dedmond uh, in his book, The Betrothed Bride of the Messiah. Uh, in, his, in a commentary in that book on this very verse, this is what Rick Dedmond writes. Acting as a friend of the bridegroom, Moses escorted Israel, the bride, to Mount Sinai, where God, the bridegroom, was waiting for his bride. But before Moses brought Israel, the bride of God, before Moses brought Israel, the bride to God, the bridegroom, Israel had to be immersed in a mikvah or bridal bath. That's what happened in Exodus 19 verse 10. And this is what we call baptism today. The bridal bath of the church of an individual believer before he or she is married to Christ. Baptism is our bridal bath before we are united in marriage with Christ, our bridegroom, Messiah. In Jesus, if you consider yourself to be a believer in Jesus... Have you been baptized by being fully immersed in water? Have you enjoyed this bridal bath yet? This is not a question of a religious rule. This is a question of love. Baptism is an expression of our desire to take Christ Jesus as our bridegroom Messiah. It's an expression of our desire to be married to him. So if we indeed believe in Jesus, if we indeed believe that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, there can never be any reason to reject baptism or this bridal bath of us being united to Christ. And that's the first thing I wanted to draw for us from this passage. The imagery of baptism, the imagery of marriage being interconnected. Baptism as a bridal bath. The second thing I want to draw for us from this passage is the reckless love of God. The reckless love of God. Look at verse 25 from this passage. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Christ gave himself up for us. Christ gave himself up for sinners like us. And this giving up 
uh, here in this passage is actually referring to Christ Jesus giving himself to death on the cross out of the love he has for his pride. And it is this giving up that I'm referring to when I'm calling the reckless love of God. In, in some contexts, I understand that the word reckless uh, has different connotations. It has different meanings. and So one must be very careful in using this word. The word reckless, in some contexts, it means careless. He's a reckless spender. He's a careless spender. That's not the meaning in this context. Christ did not die carelessly for us. Christ died recklessly for us. What do I mean by that? The Oxford Dictionary uh, defines the word reckless as being heedless of danger or the consequences of one's actions. This is what we are talking about here. Jesus was heedless of danger and consequences to himself as he died on the cross for the sins of men and women. This is what we mean. It is this giving up, unmindful of the consequences he had to face on the cross of bearing the Father's wrath for your sins and mine upon himself. That's the context in which I'm using this word, reckless. Jesus was reckless to the extent of dying on the cross for our sins. And the question I want to linger on today is how do we respond to this reckless love of God? How do we respond to this reckless love of God? Let me first share how we must not respond to this reckless love of God. And then I'll talk about how we must respond to this reckless love of God. First, we must not respond to this reckless love of God with a safe and comfortable love. That's pretty obvious. God's agape romance of us, as we've been seeing these past few weeks, God's agape romance of us is not a safe middle class, get married, buy a home, have a few kids, live happily and comfortably ever after kind of a romance. That's not how God loved us. God's love for us is not a safe and a, and a calculated and a, and a measured romance. No, his romance of us is a wild, reckless, and even unpredictable love. Why do I use the word unpredictable? Now, tell me something. Would you have predicted that God would lay his son's life to die for us? Would you have predicted in the normal course of God's love that he will come himself and die for our sins? Is that predictable love? Is that safe, comfortable sitting in an armchair from a distance loving you kind of a love? No, God's love for us is a reckless love. It's an adventurous love. God did not sit in his favorite armchair in a nice home in heaven and look at us and say, Darling, I love you. I'm here for you. I'm going to keep cheering you. You know, I'm your biggest cheerleader in heaven. Come on, you can do it. You can become better than you are now. You can, you can live up to my expectations. I created you for a purpose. You can live up. I'm going to cheer for you and let's see you do it. Sitting from his favorite armchair in heaven. No, that's not how God loved us. You know how God loved us? He gave up heaven and came to earth. He abandoned his glory and became ordinary. He abandoned his power and became weak. He abandoned his beauty 
and became ugly. He laid aside his honor and was shamed publicly. Christ lost everything in his love for us. He lost everything. God's love for us is not a safe love. It's not a comfortable love. It's, it's a reckless love. God's love for us is a daring love. It's a go for broke kind of a love. It's an adventurous love. It's a love that took enormous risks. And therefore, we cannot, just cannot play it safe when we respond to this reckless love that God has for us. What do I mean by playing safe in our response to Him? Not taking baptism is a safe response to God's love. It's a very safe response to God's love. You see, for many of us in the culture that we live in, taking baptism is a big risk. If you're not from a Protestant Christian family, and that's, that's a niche, which is, you know, if you're not from a Protestant Christian family, taking baptism is a big risk. I come from a Hindu Brahmin family. And I know what it costs to take baptism. I know what it costs. In Brahmin culture, you're cast out of the family, you're termed a traitor, and you're disinherited when you take baptism. My wife Aji and I, we know. We know the cost. We've paid the price. So we know the cost. I understand. I understand how much of a risk baptism is. I understand that baptism can anger your family. Even if you're in a Catholic family, which most of us broadly consider Christian, even if you're in a Catholic family or, or in some, some context uh, where some uh, churches, and I have only respect and love and adoration for those churches, I would never criticize any of those churches. I have some great friends uh, in churches, beautiful churches, which practice infant baptism. Now, I'm not saying anything against that. But all I'm saying that if you're from that context and you choose to take immersion baptism, your family is not going to be happy with you. Isn't that true? Right? I'm not pronouncing any judgment. I'm just saying a matter, matter of fact. And you're going to have a discussion on this, on this later. If you're even from a Catholic, or definitely if you're not from a Christian family, your, your family is not going to like it if you take baptism. Without doubt, taking baptism is a big risk. And I am so glad it is a big risk. I am glad baptism is a big risk because it gives us an opportunity to test the strength of our faith and our love for Christ Jesus. Are we going to play it safe and ignore baptism? Or am I going to respond to God's incredible love for me with faith and courage and take baptism despite opposition? That's the question we're dealing with today. We have to decide one way or the other. I'm sorry, folks. There is no third way. Either we're going to sit and be safe in how we love this God who gave his son for us, are we going to love him with, with the same daring with which he loved us? Let me give us an illustration uh, using dating and marriage uh, to understand this. I know that will be very relevant to us. You know, many parents, many parents um, um, would not have too strong an objection if you date a boy or a girl uh, from another caste or religion. They may not have too strong and again, I'm not pronouncing a judgment, so don't hear me wrong. And again, as I keep saying, please don't tweet me wrong. 
but but they would they would be okay they would not be too upset they will tell you they don't like it uh, they will put up with it and they may even let you take your date uh, to to a family to your home or to a family event you know they might actually be even they may actually even be nice to your date when you take him or her home you know outside nice civil but the moment you decide to marry that person all hell will break loose you will see a side of your parents you have never seen before why is that why is that because marriage is permanent marriage is permanent it's a very helpful analogy if you're coming from a non-christian family or even from a catholic families your parents may not object too much to you coming to a church like us but if you dare to get baptized all hell will break loose why is that baptism is marriage it's permanent baptism is marriage it's permanent coming to church for them is like dating jesus they're okay with that to some extent but baptism is akin to getting married you see after all baptism is the bridal bath that precedes your marriage to christ jesus if you're from a non-christian family your parents may never have read the bible and i'm certain they're never going to listen to this sermon or any of my sermons <laughs> but i bet they know what baptism is they intuitively you cannot fool them around you cannot kind of you know you know tell them a half truth they know what baptism is they know baptism is like marriage they know baptism is permanent so the question is do you want to be safe and comfortable and in, in loving god or are you so moved by the passion with which christ jesus loved you by the risk he took by the danger he faced by the suffering he endured in loving you so it's has it moved our heart so much that we want to love him back the same way that's the question we're dealing with today it's an important question it's a extremely important question in the culture in which we live in i want to show us before i close this morning that the church the early church responded to the reckless love of god by being equally daring in taking baptism despite persecution Soon after the death, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, the Roman Empire persecuted Christians. And this persecution is is nothing like what we've seen. I know we do face some persecution, but it's nothing like what we've seen. In that time, in the early church, Christians were thrown to the lions in the amphitheater. Christians were burnt alive as street lights. This is history. but the bible records for us in the book of hebrews that christians were even sawed into two pieces for their faith hebrews records this for us and yet the early church took baptism you see in those days 
you couldn't hide inside the walls of a church and take baptism because guess what? There were no church buildings. They were not allowed. The Roman persecution did not allow that. And so if you had to take baptism, you had to take baptism publicly in a pool or a lake or a river. And guess what happens if you take publicly, uh, baptism publicly in a persecuted country? You're dead the next morning. So what did they do? Did the early Christians play it safe? Did they play it safe and not take baptism? Of course not. Here's what they did. You know, in the early Roman culture, those history buffs, you'll know this. The Romans hated death. They were afraid of death. And they didn't even want to think about death ever. They wanted to push death into the margins. They wanted to push the dead out of sight. And so they never had any burial grounds or cremation grounds. They built catacombs underground. They built catacombs underground to bury the dead so that they don't have to see dead. death. They never have to be reminded of death ever. No cemeteries, no tombstones, nothing in Roman culture. That's why they build the catacombs so there are no burial grounds in sight. No Roman, in fact, they, were, they, were, they had this aversion to death. They had this fear of death, aversion to death, uh, dislike for death so much that after they built the catacombs, a Roman family would not even go into a catacomb to bury the dead. Dead in their own family. They would send their slaves into the catacombs to bury the dead. And the early Christians found in a persecuted country, they could worship freely in the catacombs. So next week, welcome to a worship service in a burial ground, in a catacomb. That's what they did. And the early Christians built baptism pools in the catacombs among the dead and decaying Roman bodies so that they could take baptism. Archaeology evidence, it's still there. The baptism pools the early church built in the catacombs among the dead and the decaying Roman bodies is still there for us to go and see. And that's how they took baptism. That is how important baptism was to them and that is how important baptism is to us. You see, if we worshipped a God who sat down in this comfortable place in heaven, and if he played it safe, we don't have to take the risk of baptism. And I'm afraid we don't worship a God like that. We worship a God who loved us with a reckless love by dying for us on the cross. And so, brothers, sisters, friends, we cannot, we cannot respond to this fierce and reckless love of God by being safe and comfortable and not taking baptism. So this morning it all comes down to one question. One question. Do you feel enough passion in your soul to step into this bridal bath of baptism, into this bridal bath of your marriage with Christ Jesus? Do you feel the passion to take baptism in your soul as a response to this reckless love of God. Allow me to pray for us. 
Holy Spirit, we know that we cannot manufacture uh, one ounce of, of love for you. It is by your Spirit that we cry out, Christ is the Lord. Apart from your Holy Spirit, no one can say that Jesus is Lord. And apart from your Holy Spirit, none of us can experience either the love or faith we need to take baptism, especially in a culture like ours. So this morning we pray, Lord. We pray in the name of Christ Jesus. Would you speak to every one of us, Lord? Especially those of us who have been thinking about it and who've probably been a little nervous or afraid or, or hesitant about it. And even those of us who have not really engaged with this question. Would you pray? We pray, Lord, would you speak to every one of us that we might just get to experience this joy of taking this bridal bath and being united with Christ Jesus, our bridegroom, Messiah. In Jesus' name we pray.